Hi, I'm Sean. I've always been curious about the answers to life's big questions. I thought it would be cool to seek some of those answers through conversations with others on a similar path. I started this podcast with a simple mission. I want to help you improve your life. These conversations are meant to challenge you, make you think, and inspire you to pursue the things in life that light you up. I've always believed that with the right mix of effort and perseverance, anything truly is possible. I'd like to invite you to think outside the lines. What's up, everybody? Today, we are back with part two of my conversation with the authors of The Pragmatist's Guide to Life, a guide to creating your own answers to life's biggest questions. If you missed part one of the interview, please make sure to go back and check it out, as there's a ton of insight in that part of the conversation. And now, it's time to think outside the lines for part two of my conversation with Simone and Malcolm Collins. In the pre-interview questions that you guys completed, you wrote a paragraph that I actually want to read completely because I'm kind of obsessed with it. Um, You say, the vast majority of people never exercise their freedom to choose their identity and beliefs. Instead, they allow others to tell them who they are, choosing only a few trivial differentiating traits for themselves. When they react angrily or generously, they ascribe the personality that led them to that behavior as being something outside of their control. This is because, in their minds, who they are, quote, is something outside of their control. Um... Now, Oprah refers to this as like an aha moment, which is what I felt like I had when I read this. Um, how do we get more people to understand this? So this is, okay, so I, I, I could talk about this. I'm so excited about this topic, and this is actually an exact quote from our book. It's sort of a, a, an early part of our book. Is it so much of the self-help community right now, and why this isn't sort of mainstream information, is designed to make us okay and happy with who we've allowed ourselves to become. Totally. Because that is the ice cream, that is the sugary, calorie, you know, bad for you food of uh, life affirmations and sort of statements you can have about life because it makes you feel good about yourself and it's what gets shared. And a lot of people who are writing self-help books, you know, they're not like us, they're not people who have been successful in other fields and donate all the money from a book to a nonprofit, they write the book because they're trying to sell as many self-help books as possible. And if you write a self-help book that says, you know, if you're a, a bad person, well, maybe that's your fault and you need to take responsibility for it. If you have failed at achieving a good version of yourself, um, that's that's you. Like if you yelled at your wife or you beat your wife, you don't get to say, oh, that's because my parents or whatever. At some point, you have to take responsibility for who you've allowed yourself to become, and you can change that, but telling people that isn't a pleasant thing to tell people, and that's not information that, especially in this current culture, people want to share because it forces people to take responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I would actually say, too, that like I think a lot of self-help books are written from the perspective of someone trying to like rationalize their own you know, ideals or their own you know, flaws in their life, so kind of to your point. Yeah, or believe that the world is a, I mean, it's not that the world is a, is a harsh place, but a lot of self-help books are meant to make you feel good about the status quo of the world. 
that everybody really cares about love and that everybody is really striving to make everyone else better. And if we just took the time to understand them all, then we would see. And when you can convince someone about that, they feel really good. I mean, even for a moment, I don't think it's an accurate view of reality, but I can see why it sells. Yeah. Simone, did you have anything you want to add to that? Just because I feel like that's a really powerful paragraph that you guys wrote. It's one of the most impactful things I think you can change about yourself to genuinely feel good about yourself it it initially feels good like ice cream to to say i'm okay i'm I'm good enough it's it's fine for me to be the way i am and it, it feels like getting up really early and going to the gym to say i'm not good enough and i need to change or i'm not happy with who i am and it's my fault but once you actually get into the habit of doing that it's incredible and the results you see are astounding i i love the way you put that you know it's sort of like you can either learn to love yourself or learn to be someone who you love. Yeah, that's true. You also say that who you are is either who you choose to be or who you've allowed yourself to become, and it's obviously along these lines, but you say there's no third option. Um, I agree with this, but I think the question then becomes how can we make the choice to be different when conditioning plays such a critical role and reconditioning is so very challenging? It's something we've discussed a lot, to be honest, because making the shift is really hard. Yeah. Um, long story short, the way we outline the process in the book is you need to create a new internal model of self. And it's very easy to do that, you know, say, well, okay, my new internal model is someone who's responsible and never gets angry and is very productive and wise and they take time to think and, you know, all these things. Um, and so you have this new version of yourself that you're, okay, now I'm going to be this person. But, but actually installing that in your production model, that autopilot version of yourself that goes grocery shopping and lives out 98% of your life is not easy. Um, the way that, that we've discussed making that shift from staging to production, as it were, um, involves what we call a, a flux period in life. Um, it, for example, when a lot of people need to quit smoking, they'll spend two weeks in Japan and not smoke in Japan and then try to come back different. You have to experience some kind of jarring change to change your behavior. And a lot of behavioral economists and people who, you know, through various government programs, try to shift people's behavior also find that the most effective way to do that is to catch people during a flux period when they are, okay, they just moved to a new city. They are about to have their first child. They just graduated college. The best example of this that I heard um, is the uh, Vietnam example, mm. where of people who were addicted to heroin in Vietnam, or it might have been cocaine, 70% of them lost the addiction when they came back to the US, like that. Wow. Because they were in a different context and they were contextualizing themselves and their life differently. And it made it easy to break something that is typically a habit that is almost impossible to break. Um, but again, a lot of what we write, I, I used to be a neuroscientist. That was sort of my first thing that I did with my life. Um, and I drew a lot on that knowledge when we were writing this section. But I will say we we don't know if we have everything totally worked out in this section yet. And if in our wildest dreams, our foundation was ever like crazy well-funded, we would use it to do more research on how to make these permanent changes to yourself. Yeah, and I, I love your um, staging to production software development reference. I did get that. Um, <laughs> so you have co-founded the Pragmatist Foundation and co-authored a fantastic book called The Pragmatist's Guide to Life. Uh, talk a bit about your mission with both the foundation and the book. Just as we mentioned earlier, we want people to 
learn how to consider alternate viewpoints. And really importantly for what we're trying to do with this book is help people live their lives intentionally, a life that they own. And before I met Malcolm, he was the first person who made me actually think for myself what my true values were and what I wanted to do in life. I was by every definition of, of the term that I could think of successful. You know, I had everything figured out and I appeared to everyone else who knew me to be successful and I was doing all the things that I, I thought I should be doing and it turns out that none of those things are things that I personally value when I actually ask myself these questions. You know, I, I traveled internationally and, and took all these photos with my fancy camera. I don't like that. I hate traveling. You know, I hosted parties at my house on a regular basis. I hate parties and I don't like being around people. <laughs> more important than that, when I started asking you, well, do you actually want to be happy? You're like, no. No. <laughs> no. Everyone had always just said, be happy, make others happy. And no one had ever said, well, I mean, do you actually believe that? And that's what the book tries to do. And it just tries to ask people these core questions that nobody asks you in either a social or, or even online context because they're not popular questions to ask and they're not popular things to engage people on. And, and here's why I think it's really important to have these values, to have an objective function, something you truly believe in and you want to maximize in your life is a lot of people succumb to weakness. A lot of people are, you know, okay, morbidly obese or they're crippled by anxiety and can't leave the house. And I was one of those people. Um, a lot of people have issues that hold them back. And I think one of the biggest barriers that stops us from overcoming addiction or overcoming a, a mental illness or a physical illness is a lack of purpose. And, and I actually saw this with the passing of my mom last year. She fought ovarian cancer for more than the three years. And I think in the end, she, she chose to stop taking treatment because she didn't have a reason to keep going. And I see this a lot with people who just let themselves hold themselves back. There's not any reason for them to get over it. And when you, when you have a clear purpose, you can overcome almost anything. Yeah, when you have something more powerful to you than whatever uniquely salient emotional experience you're, you're experiencing at any moment is, you can overcome the drive of that salient emotional experience. But for so many people, um, and, and, and myself at points in my life as well, I didn't have a more important thing than whatever I was experiencing in the moment. Yeah, so then why, why try? Why try? And I should clarify, the way you said it, you made it sound like you used to be morbidly obese. No. no you used to have <laughs> severe anxiety and didn't leave your house. Yeah. And, and uh, pretty severe OCD and like uh, uh, couldn't, uh, couldn't have me touch anything in her room or anything like that. I had to like stand in the, in the corner. <laughs> yeah. when I visited so, her. Again, I feel like in a whole other podcast episode, um, I, anxiety is such an interesting thing because I think so many people suffer from, suffer from anxiety and they don't even know that's what they should be calling it. Um, mm. And it's so crippling to so many people. Um you you talk about values and I wonder and I, I actually I didn't have this question written down but I'm kind of thinking it out loud I wonder how many people actually know what their values are oh so few I imagine well okay so maybe maybe let's say 30% of your audience is like I know my values I would have been in the past one of those people I know my values it's to be happy and help people and make the world a better place because basically those are the default values that I as someone who grew up in Silicon Valley was told I should have you know or maybe it's you know I'm gonna spread the word of Jesus and save as many people as I can right is whatever it is that you grew up and were exposed to um, the, the number of people in this population who have considered every value that could exist 
and why it might be of merit and why it might not be and decided for themselves, perhaps against the decision of their mainstream society, what their values are, I think that's extremely low. I, I think the way you worded that came off as a little accusatory and it might be better to sort of focus on it from a yourself perspective in your own sort of journey, which was when I questioned her, I was like, so you, you want to maximize what happiness for other people? Is that what you mean? Yeah, and when I you told them wanna... I want to make the world a better place. And I, I want to be like, happy. Define, wanna... define. Yes. So you want to maximize aggregate happiness. Do you want to minimize suffering? Like specifically, what does a better world look like? If you could put everyone in a pod that maximized their emotional experience, and you could press a button and put them all in that, would you do that? And she's like, well, no, because then they wouldn't have freedom. So it's it's a freedom combined with happiness. And where does the intrinsic value in each of these things come with? come from and what sort of your philosophical framework for that and that's when she's like oh i guess i, I haven't really thought through this yeah <laughs> no you really have to parse it out because it and it and it's not those general terms that that we like to think of values as and one thing we really try to focus on with the book is not guiding someone towards a specific answer just sort of explaining the reasons why someone might argue that any answer is wrong well yeah and here's the thing we equally valued i mean at least personally i don't care whatever people think but personally we value every value that someone might have as long as they can show their work just show your work yeah show why you believe what you believe you know i i and i think this is one thing that makes us really different from a lot of people in our communities is we actually really um uh align very well with sort of uh, you know, Mormon and Christian evangelical sort of communities. Um, and we really like the way they see the world because often they really have thought through why they believe what they believe and do have a deep philosophical framework for why they believe it. Um, because there is some expectation that you build that within some of those more academic communities where that expectation doesn't always exist within these sort of hippie or San Francisco communities. Mm. When you can sort of get away with just saying, well, I want to make other people happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, in the book, so there's some people looking for like tangible action steps, right? In the book, mm -hmm. you guys outline a four-step process uh, to taking ownership of your beliefs and your identity. I'd love if you could maybe walk us through these steps. <laughs> mm, yes. Okay. Do you want to do it or uh, I'll go. So um, first, decide what your objective function is. Your objective function is whatever you think has intrinsic value in the world and that you're trying to maximize. And it can be a collection of things. It can be, you could even be a nihilist but you're still choosing some heuristic that you use to decide, you know, when you study for an exam or go out and play. You know, just because you're a nihilist doesn't mean that you don't have an objective function which is guiding your decision-making process. But your objective function could also be religious-based or something like that. Then choose your ideology. Your ideology is a set of hypotheses about how the world works that uh, you use to best realize your objective function in the world. Yeah, like hypothesis. I think I can maximize X by doing Y based think, on Z evidence. Yeah, I think the Democratic Party has the right solution to this set of problems. The thing about ideologies that makes them different from an objective function is they are potentially provably wrong. You know, you could find evidence that makes you say, huh, I guess I was wrong about this. You know, I guess I was wrong that capitalism is the best form of you know economic system um and these the something we talk a lot about in this chapter is choosing the standard of evidence that you value and sort of how you rank different types of evidence whether it's personal experiences or scientific research or expert consensus um, and sort of an example we use here to get people to sort of think through this because we think a lot of people assume that they know what standards of evidence they view more 
But when the question is worded a different way, they realize that they might not go to the standard of evidence that they thought they would have, which is suppose you believe or don't believe in ghosts, right? What evidence would you need to change your beliefs on that? If you don't believe in ghosts and you saw a ghost standing in front of you, would your first assumption be, huh, I guess I'm having a schizophrenic episode right now. That's really interesting. Um, or you saw, you know, the New York Times published ghosts everywhere, but you hadn't seen them. Would you then change your belief on that? Or a scientific paper came out that said, uh, here, we've proven the ghosts. Would that change your beliefs on it? Um, and, and so sort of building a heuristic for how you change your beliefs. The third step is really focused around how you change your core character. And that's something that we talked a bit about, how you change, how you emotionally act to things, how you change the core of who you are. Um, and the final part is how you change how other people perceive you to best maximize your objective function. And a lot of people hear that and they're like, I don't care what other people think of me. And I'm like, no, almost no matter what your objective function is. Unless it's to retreat from society and gain enlightenment or something. Yeah, like in the woods or something. You care what other people think of you because you need to influence other people to achieve what you want, even if it's just to make an income. Yeah, or not have them arrest you. I don't know. Yeah, I've actually, I've always found that to be one of the most like um, bullshit, like, responses I've ever heard someone say like I don't care what people think of me every single human being cares at some point what people think of them I don't care who you are I don't like if you have to perform in society via a career or friendships or whatever you care what people think of you Um, oh yeah 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 I've always had an issue with that statement all right so just to recap the four steps I want to say they are choose what you think has value um, choose how you can effectively manifest that set of values choose Mm -hmm. the type of person you want to be and choose how you want others to see you Yes. Yes. Awesome. Um, I want to talk a bit about knowing what you want from life because I think that this is a little too big and esoteric for a lot of people. Now, of course, we might know what we want, um, but one of my favorite expressions is between the saying and the doing lies the sea. Um, And my intention with the show is really to provide tangible, tangible, actionable steps for people who want to make a difference in their lives. Um, and I think that there's a level of discipline involved in this that most people aren't willing to subject themselves to, or they simply don't know how. Um, so from your guys' perspective, how can we work to become more disciplined? Well, first off, I do acknowledge it's extremely uncomfortable to think through these things. Um, but what we try to do in the book at least is offer a lot of thought experiments, which can provide a litmus test to help you understand instinctually if something really works for you and if it doesn't. And I think at the end, everyone does have these very base proclivities that push them towards one of those judgment calls about values. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's genetic, maybe it's, I don't know, um, but it it just, it's there and it is pretty clear. So for example, um, you think maybe that your thing you wanna maximize in life is, is perfection. But we then provide the thought experiment of, okay, well, if you could just skip everything and immediately be perfect right now, would you accept that? Would you become perfect? And some people might say, oh, yeah, totally. Whereas someone else might say, wait a second. No, I didn't earn it if you just make me perfect out of nowhere. And then maybe then the thing that they value more is the struggle for perfection and the fight for it. Which may change the heuristics of what they're trying to achieve. I think that, you know, you talked about, I remember when I first started talking with you, you just started bawling one day because you're like, oh, I guess I actually have to think through this and I really I don't want to. I was so mad at And you. one thing we say in the book is that it's a pretty unpleasant book, or at least the first chapter is pretty unpleasant. And it's, it's not like a super enjoyable read because challenging yourself on these topics is difficult and thinking through them is difficult. I would say the thing 
that uh, like if I was going to have one thought that could motivate people to to actually consider these is what happens if you don't take the time to consider what you really want from your life? What happens in 50 years because you don't want to do it today and chances are you don't want to do it tomorrow. And I've seen this with so many successful entrepreneurs. You know, I used to be a VC and they they made a ton of money and then they're like, I, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. And I'm like, is it that you're not happy? And they're like, no, that's the thing. I thought, you know, the, the lie that I was sort of told with society is that money wouldn't make me happy. And money did make me happy, but it turned out that happiness wasn't what I wanted. And, or, or that helping other people in this way wasn't what I wanted. And if you can make that decision now in your life, now as opposed to 20 years or 30 years later, later, what you're really trying to achieve, then you won't waste every year from this year to that living a, a directionless life. Yeah, and I also think that fear factors in um, a lot of this. It's, it's a huge motivating force in a lot of people's lives. Do you guys have any suggestions for how people can be more mindful of the impact that fear has in their lives and maybe work to overcome it? Honestly, my mind immediately jumps to something you said in one of your earlier podcasts when you went to a meditation retreat and were presented with the concept of observing that emotion or any emotion as a third party and understanding that you are not that emotion, you are separate from it yeah. and it will pass. And, and one thing that really hit me that I heard someone say was the average emotion lasts for about 15 seconds. Uh, and if you just write it out, I mean, there it goes. And you may have sort of an overlay state, which is something we talk about in the book, where maybe, you know, you're chronically sleep deprived, you're really, really hungry, and then sort of no matter what, you're not going to feel that great. But really painful, sharp emotions don't last all that long. And also emotions are, and one thing we talk about is you have a huge degree of control over your emotions. Because you don't become afraid, you don't feel these sort of emotional impulses. Uh, out of nowhere in your environment. You know, you're not feeling them in, in relation to an auditory stimuli or, you know, uh, an audio stimuli that's just direct and you can't avoid. Your fear response is coming from a narrative that you've created, a story you're telling yourself. Your brain, when it creates an emotion, is reacting to stories, not sort of world stimuli. And you have control over those stories. Um, and once you have enough purpose in life, controlling the stories you're telling yourself becomes a relatively trivial task because you have something more important than the emotions. And you can say to yourself, am I really benefiting in my objective function from feeling fear right now? No, I'm not. Okay, I need to change the story I'm telling myself. Now, we're still stuck operating really disgusting and inconvenient meat popsicles, which do get emotionally engaged in very inconvenient moments, which is to say, like, I mean, fear will still sneak up on you, even if you have a really great mental model that's really, you know, mature. And I experienced this uh, in January with my fear of needles that sort of goes oh, yeah. way back. I had to inject myself with an intramuscular needle that was really big oh by my myself. Oh my God. And the first time that I had to do it, I cried and cried and called the doctor and said, I can't do this. I'm going to hit bone. This is really huge. I, this is like a horse needle. You can't do this. To I was, and I just like no dignity, just no dignity. And then about two months later, I had to do it again. And the whole time I was like, that wasn't productive. I, I thought about it. You know, I, I don't want to be the kind of person who freaks out upon injecting myself with a giant needle. 
Um, and, and by that point, because I'd recognized that it was something that they got triggered without me being able to be consciously in control, I made myself consciously in control and I decided, okay, it, you know, I'll build some strategies around not freaking out about this. I got a numbing pad, which helped. Um, and then I just did it and it was like nothing. It, it was so easy. There's such an interesting point that you pull out there that I don't think you and I have talked about that much yet is that to control these emotional states, you often need to create the heuristics and the change in your mental model when you're not overcome by these emotional states. Once you're overcome with fear, there's not really anything you can do to fix that situation. Yeah, Once silly. you're overcome with that anxiety, you are not in a position where you can change your mental model to not feel it anymore. Yeah, there's, there's a threshold that passes. You have to be calm to change your mental model. And if you're not calm in a moment, it ain't nothing happening. But, but the, that's part of why it's so important to make these changes to yourself today and not later, not once it's an emergency. Make these changes and develop these heuristics before the emergency happens, because at that point you're already screwed. What do you guys hope will be the lasting legacy of your work in this realm? We'd love to change the way society addresses ideas and, and, and engages in debate. That's really it. That's what we're trying to do with this foundation. And we wanted to create a new form of sort of behavioral therapy as well. Um, well, something more effective, research. yeah, based on everything we've learned, I guess. But the bigger impact I'd want, if, if we can only achieve one thing with this foundation, is to allow people to actually let the best ideas win and actually let their true best selves come out. If it could just be cool, like if I could change one thing, if I could make it cool in our society to say, I'm wrong, that you could leave the society having had the upper hand in a conversation because you were willing to challenge your beliefs and the other person went away from the conversation more humbled. Like genuinely challenged yeah. like, because the, the, the idea was genuinely better. But that requires a culture shift and that's something that you know we have to work on from the ground up and I guess that's why we're sort of one of the things we want to start with is after school programs with our foundation and stuff like that. I love that. And I'm going to take that advice next time I encounter a Trump <laughs> supporter who wants to have a conversation. Um, we'll see how good that, good that works out. Uh, I'd like to end all my conversations on a positive note. So I want to ask you, and you're both welcome to respond. Um, what inspires you most about what you see in the world today? Uh, how awesome the world today is. Um, and I think that we tell ourselves this lie and every generation is done in it. If you go back and read previous generations, they all say the world's going to hell, everything is getting worse. Even though war rates drop every year, murder rates drop every year, health increases, poverty rates decrease, you know, happiness is increasing. Yeah, everything seems to be getting better constantly. Uh, and I look at uh, one example I like to use is, is um, what was it, Louis XIV or whatever, you know, one of the richest, probably most privileged people in the entire world in his generation because of medical technology at the time, had to poo through a festering hole in his back that had rotted out his skin from bacteria and couldn't even sit down. He lived in such constant pain. And if you think that that's the life that the most privileged person in the world is living, imagine what the normal person's life was like back then, how absolutely horrific it was. And I think it was in our own generation, we're like, well, uh, look at one generation back, look at two generations back. Things were sort of better back then. And it's like, no, they weren't. Like the way we treated gay people, the way we treated minorities back then, things were not better. Th things, you might have been born into a privileged class had you been born within that time period. And things might have been 
slightly better for you, but would you really give up your smartphone technology that gives you immediate access to all human knowledge at any time, wherever you are? <laughs> when, when you go to, when you go to the restroom, you get to sit down and, and, and take a dump in no pain while you have access to all human knowledge at your fingertips. Both that's at the same time. Insane. Yeah, <laughs> it's magic. That's the the contrast, um, and and it's it's just truly remarkable. It's also truly remarkable. You know, one thing that Simone, um, when she did her graduate degree at Cambridge, she was focused on technology policy, and one thing that she really was uh, talking about recently that I found pretty humbling was, even if you go to parts of the world that do have pretty severe poverty, um. The, the technology and information they have access to and how quickly things are improving in many of those regions. Yeah, it, it inspires me and, and makes me so hopeful that we live in a time of rapid, insane flux. I mean, when you look at the way that humans have changed and technology has changed in, well, you know, all history that we're aware of, and we look at where we are now, we're at this fascinating point. It could be an inflection point or it could just keep accelerating, but no matter what, we are very lucky to be living now because it's really God, exciting. a study I saw today that made me so hopeful was, I didn't know this, but now even in countries where they weren't sure that birth rates would continue to decline, they've continued to decline. Oh. And even in these sort of, you know, uh, risky, uh, you know, areas of the world where we weren't sure if poverty would continue at the same rates and everything, we're seeing the birth rate decline, which typically happens before uh, quality of life increases dramatically. That's wonderful. Pretty yeah. much everywhere. There hasn't been an exception right now, and that's really remarkable. Things are good in the world. Yeah, I agree. And I love that there's two people out there like you guys that are that are helping to facilitate positive conversation. And um, yeah, it's, it's very inspiring for me as well. Simone, Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, please tell us how we can connect if someone would like to stay in touch. Either visit pragmatist.guide, which is our book's website, or email Malcolm or me, M-A-L-C-O-L-M at pragmatist.guide or Simone, S-I-M-O-N-E at pragmatist.guide. And if you ever need to book travel, we also run, I mean, our day job is running a large travel company, Travel Max, so you can just email us at CEO at travelmax.com and we'll see what we can do for you. We specialize in, in large corporations and helping people save money on travel. All right, I want to thank Malcolm and Simone one more time for joining me this week. Uh, please be sure to check out their book. It's it's a brilliant piece of work, and I think it's really helpful for anybody that's looking to answer some questions in their lives, which I think we should all be aspiring to. Uh, I'd also like to thank you for listening this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this episode with anyone you think could benefit from hearing it. Now, as always, you can find the links for everything we talk about in the show notes, which can be found over at thinkoutsidethelines.com. And feel free to drop me a line with any questions or feedback on the show. You can always send an email to hello at thinkoutsidethelines.com. Until next time, go out there and pursue your passion today. Because the best way to predict the future is to create it. For more information, please visit thinkoutsidethelines.com.